on today's episode of The Mythic Masculine. Relating consciously is the way it begins. Knowing how you feel, having communication skills, being able to um, discuss with your partner what is joyous for them uh, in terms of um, intimacy, in terms of collaboration, in terms of raising children, all that. And then what eventually happens is that the path of relationship becomes a path of consciousness itself. That essence is relational. Nature is that way. Nature is not in any way individualistic. Is it a path for touching the divine? Is it a path? Can it be for you a path um, of, of embracing spirit and experiencing that ecstatic nature? What does it mean to be a man today? The old ideas of masculinity are dissolving, and the new expressions are just beginning to rise. In the era of Me Too and biospheric collapse, how might we look to the old myths and archetypes for guidance to navigate this space between stories? This podcast explores the historical, cultural, and contemporary voices that are shaping this dynamic conversation of the emerging masculine. Greetings, dear listener. I'm your host, Ian McKenzie. My guest today is Jack Zimmerman, an elder in the realm of relational intimacy. He is the co-author of The Way of Counsel, what I consider to be a key book on teaching the foundations of functional community. He is also the co-author of Flesh and Spirit, The Mystery of Intimate Relationship, which he wrote with his life partner, Jacqueline McCandless. In our conversation, we cover the origin and foundations of the counsel practice, We explore the mystery of partnership, from understanding resonating wounds and the nature of projection, to how to tune into the consciousness of the third, that relational space between you and another person. And finally, he speaks how walking the path of radical intimacy is to partner with the evolutionary intelligence of life itself. If you are stirred and inspired by what you hear, head over to the Mythic Masculine Network, a growing community of scholars, artists, activists, and poets who are diving deep into the conversation of emerging masculinities. Check out the official website to learn more at themythicmasculine.com. And now, enjoy this conversation. Jack Zimmerman, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Would you please begin by sharing with our listeners uh, where you are in this moment, you know, maybe geographically, uh, physically, spiritually, just giving them a glimpse of of you in this moment. Uh, Okay. Um, I am sitting um, in the north um, eastern part of the big island of Hawaii, in the middle of the Pacific. Um, I'm I'm sitting in uh, what... My granddaughter used to call the blue house, has a blue roof. Um, There's lots of space here. I can see the ocean at a distance. And um, uh, I'm sitting um, uh, in the middle of what we're all sitting in now, um, uh, a feeling of um, awareness of the need for connectedness, uh, a a strong sense of... um, wholeness, um, potentially, 
And at the same time, uh, the realization of the fragmentation that um, this planet um, holds right now, both in terms of countries and within countries, people. So it's a time uh, that I feel really stirred. Um, and uh, it's also a time where I've found that there's not much boundary between the personal and the collective. Um, my life has been very much devoted to the path of intimacy and service and working in community and so forth. And now the sense of community has grown tremendously. And so I, I feel like I'm back in kindergarten learning at the, you know, in, in these advanced years that I'm finally uh, into, um, learning about things that um, I've never seen before, I've never experienced before, uh, particularly this connection between the very intimate and personal and the collective. I'm... Um, Optimistic in the long term, but um, the reality, um, one of the things I hope we end up talking about is the heart-mind um, versus the mind-heart. And um, in the heart-mind, the core of it is reality, being very, very real and um, uh, not deflecting into um, mythology that uh, reduces fear but takes you out of reality. So um, I think we're in a place now where we're beginning to develop that kind of reality. Um, uh, I think that this is an opportunity. The other day I was talking to somebody and they said, well, how would you describe what's going on now? And I said, well, it's a time of terrifying opportunity. <laughs> and that seemed to click. Uh um, I've mentioned that to a few people and that seemed to click. So I think we're... Um, I think we're in a time of terrifying opportunity, you know? Um, the chips are on the table. Thank you for that. Terrifying opportunity. Mm. I'd love to speak initially to this um, lifelong practice that you've been developing and, and in service to, which is actually how I came to know about your work, which is uh, The Way of Counsel. And, um, you know, you, you co-authored the book, The Way of Counsel, with Gigi Coyle, who's actually um, another elder mentor that uh, I've uh, been blessed to, you know, spend some time with and, and look to for guidance in different times. And uh, for, for a while after, you know, reading that book, you were, you were the co-author of this really profound book um, that really altered actually my own understanding of, you know, how to, yeah, how to create connection in not just with uh, maybe community, but yeah, also in, in relationship. And I would love to know your take on, uh, and maybe just a sort of overview of what is what is the way of counsel um, to somebody who's never heard of it before? Uh-huh, good question. Um, well, uh, the way counsel came into my life, um, as it's described in the book, was to hear a story. To hear a story that touched me very, very deeply. And I think the heart of counsel is... Um, what happens in the world of once upon a time. Um, and it starts when we're children. And that part of us that can respond uh, in an expanded way, that part of us that has an imagination beyond what we even realize we have, gets activated uh, when we're in story time. And it's a magical time, and it's a relational time. 
um, uh, many parents tell their children stories, ongoing stories that they kind of make up. And uh, that was true in my life with my children. And uh, we wove their, their life into a sort of mythological story. And that stays with you. And uh, that, that um, wonder that a child has. So the council process, the way we have imagined it or remembered it, it's probably the oldest form of communication is people gathering um, around a fire. In the Lakota tradition, it's called the children's fire. And the children played. And the children's fire is described not only because children were playing around it and people ate around it and prayed around it, but because of the notion of a child um, and the child's imagination. And um, it's sort of like in the New Testament, that favorite, um, famous comment that Jesus makes, come unto me as a child, come with your heart open, with your imagination open, um, and listen deeply. So the heart of counsel is uh, the magic that happens when you listen deeply. It's that simple. And when you speak um, uh, openly and authentically. And... Um, um, I had heard the story that starts the book um, from my mother-in-law at that time, and she had heard it directly from somebody who had been in the kiva in, um, in Taos. So uh, it's like a transmission. It felt to me like I, I was in that circle. And it was so transformative that when I started a school, way back in 1975, the vision of the school was that we would start each day with the circle and that the curriculum would emerge from what, where we were. You know, if it was a rainy day and we weren't going to go out, maybe it was a day to do several hours of math. Uh, if it was a sunny day and everybody was itching to get outside, it wouldn't be a good day to do math. But So we had, it was a college preparatory school ultimately and grew into quite a well-known school in Los Angeles, but um, it came out of the roots of, um, of this kind of communication and this kind of um, uh, way of sitting together and listening deeply. So the heart of it is to um, learn how to listen, to clear the mind enough so that you can be touched even by something that you disagree with, even by something that you've never heard before. And I think one reason why counsel is spreading so rapidly now is because of the need for this kind of communication. And in the, in the school where we first started it, uh, it was a little school called Heartlight, and then it went to other schools, including the one I was just referring to. Um, um, one day a parent came and saw us in the circle and we were passing a talking piece. We, we took that quality from the Lakota, that uh, practice from the Lakota, and um, are very respectful for the fact that, that this is a practice that um, indigenous people have done all over the world from time, you know, from time immemorial. And we do it in respect. So we often talk about remembering counsel you know, remembering, changing the way our body actually works um, so that we can listen and speak in that authentic way. 
And when the parent was very moved by what we were doing, she said, what are you doing? And rather than one of the teachers describing it, I asked the children to describe what we're doing. And they came up with what are now called the four intentions of counsel. Um, and of course, there are many ways of describing the intentions, but um, the way they came up with it was um, uh, these four, speaking from the heart, speaking honestly and openly and authentically. And um, the second was listening, and this is the key, really the key to uh, deep counsel, is listening in that open kind of way, where you're not in between the person speaking, your mind is not in between. <clears throat> and the third and the fourth were more functional kind of intentions. The third is to um, be spontaneous, um, to, you know, not to um, prepare um, what you're going to say, and uh, uh, because then you're in the mind and you're not, um, and you're not actually uh, listening fully. And then uh, there are several ways of describing the fourth uh, intention that have to do with storytelling itself. One is to be lean in your story, to tell the story. You know, the art of storytelling is profound, so that every sentence, if you read like an old fairy tale that's been well um, written, every, every word, every adjective, every noun is important. And then there's a certain confidentiality in counsel. There's a certain um, respect for what is spoken. You know, you what's, what is spoken in counsel stays in counsel so that the people can hold that uh, with that kind of devotion. And there are many other aspects and tensions, but those were what the kids came up with. And that's what we put in the book. And... Um, those are the intentions now that, you know, tens of thousands of people are. So it came from the heart of a child um, to describe it, which always has touched me. Wow, that's so beautiful. I didn't know that, actually, that, that that's where the, uh, the four came from. And I love hearing that story. Hmm. So my understanding as well is that you you'd already spent then a number of years in this council practice and, and bringing it into different environments from schools and I believe prisons and uh, just really applying it, you know, in all these different um, places to, to great success. And I'm curious then what came later was uh, further developing the practice of council in intimate relationship. My understanding is you met Jacqueline, your partner, and, um, and then you went on to write the book, uh, Flesh and Spirit, which is uh, what my understanding is really, yeah, like really widening the scope and the exploration about what does it mean to apply, not just counsel, but largely the intelligence of that counsel way within intimate partnership. And, um, and if that's true, yeah, I'd love to know, uh, what was it like then meeting Jacqueline for the first time? And then what led you to kind of understand that that was so much a part of your co-creative journey uh, as partners? Well, we, we actually, uh, that's, that's quite a story. We actually met in a group. Um, I was um, a headmaster of the school where a lot of this um, unfolded, not the very first experimental school, but a school that's, um, you know, a large um, independent middle and high school, which is still prospering. And um, when we met, I was um, leading that school. And um, 
uh, after a couple of years of our relationship, Jacqueline came to me one day in a, in our council and said, you're going to have to choose between being a headmaster and being with me because it's too full. It's too big a job. You can't do both. <laughs> so I chose the relationship, which was uh, not easy, but one of the best decisions I think I've ever made. Um, we actually started doing council um, very early in our relationship because I was already inspired, had been inspired uh, way back in the mid-70s um, by the story and by uh, d- looking into the roots of that practice, uh, particularly in Native American um, um, uh, history. And then when I started coming to Hawaii, I learned about Ho'oponopono, which is another form of counsel that's very prevalent in the Hawaiian tradition. Very similar, but um, somewhat different in certain ways. Each, each traditional culture had a slightly different form of it, but there's certain common roots. So anyway, Jacqueline and I were, um, were actually doing it, and, um, and we were doing it kind of intuitively. Uh, and she said, well, what is it, you know, what's, what's this council stuff? Council wasn't familiar to her. She is a psychiatrist, was a psychiatrist, and very involved with deep communication. But it wasn't uh, that practice. She wasn't familiar with that practice. So she suggested, actually, that I write the council book before we tried to write about what we were doing. So to ground it. And, of course, I had been doing it in schools um, um, for quite a while by the time we started writing the council book. So the council book comes out before the Flesh and Spirit book for that reason. And that gave us a foundation for the council practice in relationship. And the council practice in relationship is a crucible for intimacy. It's a context for intimacy. That's the, that's the bottom line. And there's a whole developed... Um, set of practices that we talk about in flesh and spirit. But when you sit in that child mind that's conscious now, not the child mind that's unconscious, but the child mind that's open and, um, and willing to imagine anything, the, the opening of imagination is an essential ingredient in um, intimacy. If you think you know what intimacy is, then you limit the intimacy. And if you're in the not knowing and the opening um, as, as a child listening to stories, then. So, um, so the books came in that order in order to ground, really, the, the more s- subtle kinds of ways of des- describing intimacy. It's somewhat easier to describe counsel, although that's elusive, too, um, than it is to describe love and intimacy and connection. The book is called Flesh and Spirit, and I wonder if you might speak to the, that context. Like, why is that such an, a, a profound um, unification that actually is somewhat um, revelatory to the current, you know, times that we live in? Like, what what, what happened to uh, separate flesh from spirit that they need to be reunited again? Wow. Okay. Um Let me tell you first the moment where that title came in. Uh, It's sort of ironic uh, because it was Easter morning. 
and uh, we lived in um, outside of Los Angeles at the time. And um, Jacqueline grew up um, in um, Oklahoma, Southern Baptist territory, and her father, in particular, was an avid um, part of the church. And she grew up um, going to church a lot and and saying something is not quite right here. And what was not right what was, was what was going on as she became a woman and began to feel the joy and the attraction that that was creating in her life and what she heard in, um, in church. There was something that wasn't in resonance that was so fundamental to her that it eventually, um, as she grew older, led to a separation between her and her father for a number of years um, until he actually began to understand and later um, in his life. So um, when we met, um, um, uh, uh, I, was, um, I grew up in New York, and the, the phrase that's usually used is a cultural, in the cultural Jewish context. I had to find my Judaism by going to Israel. I had to find what was the roots of it, which uh, that's a whole other story. So on an Easter morning, the irony, because it was Easter, we were sitting at the top of a mountain, which is right near where we lived, called uh, Saddle Peak. And um, we were sitting on this huge boulder, and we, the book had been almost finished. And we were talking about what we wanted to call the book. And, um, and Jacqueline did this wonderful monologue about bringing the connection of the body and the soul back together in a functional relational way, not in a metaphysical way, not in a, you know, a philosophical way even, but in a tangible 24-7 day-to-day way. So we talked about, uh, well, let's call, uh, I thought, well, let's call the book Body and Spirit. And she said, not enough, not enough. And so we ended up I forget who, whose mouth it came out of, but we ended up with flesh and spirit to make the point that the very flesh of the body, the very thing that as we get older, you know, goes into all kinds of strange places. And as younger, we have all kinds of very, very challenging things about our body and particularly its connection to intimacy and all that, that to bring that fully into the spirit world. There isn't a separation. Intimacy is about integration of all consciousness. Our consciousness with our partner, our consciousness with our inner circle, with our family, um, and our consciousness with all creatures, not just human creatures. So on, on many levels. So that's how the title came. And it really, um, it, it's held, you know, it's, it's been 20 some odd years now. And I've never second guessed that title. Because the very nature of it, you know, sits there and occasionally people are curious about a book that's called that. We had a little bit of difficulty um, in uh, translating it into German because the word for flesh in German is very similar to the word meat in English. And the translator said, do you really want to have this book be meat and spirit? And... uh, (laughs) And uh, that was a bit that, that was a bit much. So we had to um, 
talk about it a lot. And they ended up um, using that word because it has both meanings. Um, and as many, as many words do in many languages. But um, that, was a, that was an issue with it. I'd love to just bring that real poignancy actually to this reunification of flesh and spirit. You spoke Jacqueline coming from like a religious background, which felt like uh, that maybe they had been separated, that there was this idea. And I'll, I'll even make a bridge that I feel as well that I've recognized that um, the, there's this kind of condemnation of the flesh right? Like all that will wither, all that will die, and that is the spirit. You know, that's where the real, you know, mojo is for, for certain religious uh, orders. And in that way, it, it, it sort of upholds um, what I would consider prob- like almost like an ungrounded masculine will to transcend, which is something I've spoken to, you know, in previous podcasts with others, this idea that, you know, the masculine or men tend to be conditioned into to uphold again the spirit, you know, the uh, the unchanging, the the immortal, and that there's something in the flesh in that which will die, which actually connects us once again to the cycles of life. And I think for often uh, that women are that connection to the to the flesh to earth. And so for me, like when I hear that phrase, you know, flesh and spirit, I really think it speaks beautifully to that reunification, which is kind of like brought to acute um, nuance uh, and texture within an intimate relationship, in this case, between a man and a woman. Um, but also, it fans out deeply into um, the, the, yeah, the contemporary moment of which we see the consequence of those two being separate, you know, en masse. Indeed. Indeed. Um, well, it, uh, that's, that's one dimension, is the, the disaffection of the non-eternal nature of the body uh, then um, tends to um, lead us away from the m- miraculous qualities of the body. I mean, if you just stop and think of what a body is and what we can do with it as it has evolved over these billions of years, you know, from the mitochondria uh, a billion years ago, you know, that incredible leap that allows DNA to be created and and self-reflection eventually to be created. So there's that fundamental. And then the the other um, aspect um, has to do with uh, the fear, the fear that's underlying um, some of our traditions that separate out. Because when a man feels the passion of connection and wants to celebrate it, he understands it on a procreative level. Okay, I want to procreate the species, and that's a large part of it. But on the level of intimacy, he's limited if he sees it only in that way. And then, um, and, and, and for him to go into the fullness of intimacy, he has to face that fear of, of being in something that's larger than he is, that's not under his control, that has fearful qualities because it's unknown, and fearful qualities because the center of awareness is not going to be in his mind in the same kind of way that it was before the intimacy. So um, uh, the limitations um, of, of relationship was a large part of our motivation. And um, Jacqueline was working on a book at the end of her life, and the title of the book was God's Fear of Women which says it all, you know, that's the way she read 
um, the Bible. That's the way she heard that um, conversation. And if you look at some of our traditions in the Abrahamic religions particularly, there is that theme. There is that innate um, fear of the unknown, fear of the creative process. And to make God into a masculine figure is uh, on one level, um, uh, from the fear point of view, of course, that's what happened, but um, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense, you know, on the level of love and that, that, that sort of gut experience. I love our territory where you're treading. And uh, I want to give the listener just a moment too to maybe orient to the moment, um, or at least the the frame of the book, which for me as well was really, you know, I was no stranger to to some, you know, relational, I don't know, practices, let's say, some that, that supported uh, maybe some good communication, this and that. But I feel for me, flesh and spirit was really uh, like an, an advanced guide to intimate exploration through relationship. And for me, like it, it sort of opened up a vast territory that that was even possible, that there was something, you know, maybe you want to call it, or, or I could call it sort of conscious relating in a way, you know what I mean? Like versus unconscious. And I realized only then how unconscious actually I'd been relating and how ill-equipped we are in this culture for conscious relating, right? Because I think so many basically get together largely through, um, unconscious uh you know desires for let's say companionship or security or uh you know yeah erotic connection or safe whatever it is right there's a lot of ways in which people come together and you know that's fine um but at the same time there's such a different territory that opens up as soon as there's um, like a map and practices to enter into the deep realms of conscious intimacy and conscious relating of which I think you and Jacqueline really sketched out and, and offered in that book. And that's why for me, it was so revolutionary in terms of relating. And so I wanted to give that context for, uh, for the listeners as well, that that's, I think really what we're talking about is as soon as there's a shift into this, this conscious intentionality around the exploration of intimacy that suddenly, yeah, it's, it's a whole other map, a whole other territories open up. And so I just wanted to name that. And, um, and then I'd love to hear from you as well, um, a little bit about some of the foundational pieces of that territory. And uh, one that sticks out for me is uh, this this concept or this um, ability to to recognize the third of the relationship, uh, as you've called it. Because again, for me, that's such a foundational piece, and I'd love to hear you speak a bit more about that. Uh, I want to just comment on something you said as a as a segue into um, that question. Um, Relating consciously is the way it begins, okay? Knowing how you feel, having communication skills, being able to um, discuss with your partner the, the, uh, what is joyous for them uh, in terms of uh, intimacy, in terms of collaboration, in terms of raising children, all that. And then what eventually happens is that the path of relationship becomes a path of consciousness itself. In other words, learning to relate in that deep way that we uh, begin to talk about in flesh and spirit becomes a path. The path of intimacy is a path, is a spiritual path. 
And um, traditionally, most of the paths were individualistic then and done in groups. Most of the paths of awakening, um, uh, you know, the shamanic roots, the shaman was a s- singular uh, figure at the edge of the village. And um, what I think um, our cultures, our collective cultures need now is the shamanic essence out of which all the Abrahamic religions um, evolved, this, is that that essence is relational. Nature is that way. Nature is not in any way individualistic. And our ability to have separate bodies and to think separately, we think, <laughs> we think we're thinking separately, um, has, has reached a point now where we have not only a, a narcissistic um, issues in our relationship, but nar- a kind of narcissistic nationalism, where 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 we, you know, we we have either literal walls or symbolic walls. So, um, uh, what flesh and spirit really is about is 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 that two phase um, um, approach to relationship. One, do it consciously. What are your skills? What are the crafts? And two. Is it a path for touching the divine? Is it a path? Can it be for you a path um, of, of embracing spirit and experiencing that ecstatic nature? So um, the way it came up for us, we were doing a lot of deep communication. We had a very strong, uh, intimate life uh, that was mysterious from the very beginning. Um, you know, we had that very wild kind of beginning. And uh, it was a very interesting beginning because I met Jacqueline in a group. She was the um, co-leader of a group, um, and everybody in the group was a fairly sophisticated psychologist. Um, They let me in because I did a lot of that work running a school. I was, you know, doing a lot of counseling. So I was the only one at that point who was not a um, professional psychologist, and the group was a small group and very intimate, and we could only talk about our relationships in the group. So um, it was a nine-month group that met once a week. So I had a gestation in a group in which I didn't even know if Jacqueline was married and how many children she had. She didn't know that about me. And we got to know each other by our dreams and our interactions in a group, and we were not allowed to see each other outside the group. So the group itself turned out to be um, uh, uh, an experiment in transference, which then turned into a, an experiment in, in love. And uh, early in um, our relationship, um, one of our practices that we talk a lot about in Flesh and Spirit is sharing dreams. And sharing dreams as stories, not so much analytically, but sharing dreams to share dream time, because dream time is an intimate time. And has implications for much, much of our life, uh, even beyond what most people imagine when they, uh, even those who work with dreams. I've, I've, I've recently become so in, in awe of what dreaming actually is and how important it is right now in this more critical time that we're in. So anyway, we used to wake up in the morning um, in what we ended up calling an embrace meditation, just holding each other, um, and sharing dreams, you know, that was our agreement. Is if we had a dream that woke us up, we would share it with the other person and just listen. 
And we were doing that. And then we sort of drifted into a meditation. And in the meditation, Jacqueline felt immersed in a palpable field, in a tangible field, in a like we were in the ocean together, holding each other in the ocean. And she was just, her eyes just opened wide with wonder. And she mentioned what she was experiencing. And for about 20 seconds before I started thinking about it, I had the same experience. When I started thinking about it, then it began to diminish a little bit. But we were being held um, in a field, in a field that was um, thick with energy and thick with with connection. And um, that presence was more than the two of us. We were in it, but it was more than the two of us. My association then was Castaneda's um, um, oval of energy that he spoke about in terms of the shamanic model of the of the human energy field. So it was an expansion of that uh, with two people. So the fundamental nature of the shamanic was, was shown to us uh, spontaneously. It's not something that we thought up. And we had different names for it at different times, and we ended up just affectionately referring to it as our third um, as um, our witness, um, the presence when we were able to be in that intimacy. And most of the practices are to help the two people disappear as individualistic into the field of shared consciousness. So intimacy is shared consciousness, literally. So I love you is still, um, it, it has a quality of individualistic. So we often ended up saying love is not a verb, it's a state of consciousness, which of course is part of the old teachings. And the practices in flesh and spirit are to help move in that direction, in the direction of shared consciousness and that profound kind of coming together, um, which um, two becoming one. Hmm. Well, it makes me think of the phrase you use in the book, uh, transcending relationship. And and again, I wonder if that is uh, the frame that was developed again, that embodies this understanding. Um, and I would love to hear you speak on that. Um, also to maybe compare it to um, other, I believe there was two other like kinds of relationship that you spoke of in the book, which I found helpful. Um, for example, I think one was where a couple maybe kind of unconsciously seeks to get their needs met, you know, as a sort of base level um, dynamic within a relationship. And then they move into maybe a more conscious needs um, uh, relationship. But then there's something else. And that to me was this this evolutionary uh, sense of this transcending relationship. Uh, and I wonder again, if, if maybe I'm getting it incorrect, but I feel like there was a really, that was a really helpful model to be able to, in a way, just differentiate the nuances for the listeners too that are maybe blowing, being blown away by, by some of what you're saying. Uh-huh. Wow, uh, that's quite a question. Um, well, we talk about different um, ways of connecting and different ways of meeting. People, when they meet um, and are very drawn to each other, um, there's usually a combination of a couple of things. One is that the person meets a certain set of fairly conscious criteria. Um, um, 
about their background, about the language they speak, the, some of the traditions. Um, and then there's the secondary, but equally powerful, more subtle, I shouldn't say secondary, but more subtle, uh, which is projection. So um, most strong sense of connection from a psychological point of view comes when one or even both uh, people project something which they feel about the opposite gender if it's a heterosexual relationship. And the same thing happens in gay relationships and lesbian relationships. Everything in flesh and spirit holds for relationships, um, whether there's they're uh, heterosexual or not. Um, and that's been very interesting in our, in our studies over the years. So the projection is a part of the person who's projecting. I'm in love with you is I'm in love with an image. Let's say I'm, as the man, I'm in love with an image of the feminine that I really don't even know about. In most cases, you know, when we're young and fall in love like that and have a so-called crush, um, what's crushed is our sense of, oh, I'm independent, I can do what I want. And uh, I don't know where that word came from, but that was always my p playful way of describing it. Because when, when you have that projection, you see something outside of you which draws you. And um, so the first one of the first phases of, of, of conscious relationship is to see the projection, is to begin to understand the projection. And uh, Jacqueline and I had a really interesting time do that. She's a, a doing that. She's a psychiatrist, so she was deeply trained and experienced in the Freudian approach. And I had um, had a lot of experience uh, with the Jungian approach. So we brought Freud and Jung together, and of course, as you know historically, <laughs> that was a difficult relationship. And so we brought them together in the intimacy of our relationship. We had these incredible conversations um, that brought Freud's genius and brilliance and what he brought into, into consciousness. And then Jung's, who took it to a level where um, spirituality was an integral part of human consciousness. And so that was very much, that very broad coming together was very much part of what happened in our relationship. And that's, that's possible for, for um, any couple, particularly if they're intercultural. I've been very interested in Hawaii, in, in, in being with couples who come from very different cultures, which is very typical here. And if you bring your culture with you, and then you uh, create the field of intimacy, you're doing intercultural work. So intimacy is a way for us to heal our cultural differences if we really see it that way, and if we have that quality in our activities, you know, groups of couples getting together and, and doing that. So that's a whole nother dimension of, of why intimacy is so important for evolution now. We do the intercultural work deeply with our bodies and with our feelings and with our um, unification of, of two becoming one in intimacy. And it's so important now. I love that thought. Um, what's coming to me is uh, also a, a concept that I, I really have appreciated in the time since reading the book and has been really apparent is this uh, dynamic of resonating wounds. 
uh, that you speak to in the book and, and how so often that does seem to be like this threshold that many couples get to. Uh, I know I've been uh, at that, you know, many times in relationship where, you know, it just feels like there's nowhere to go. Um, and uh, there's a, uh, a kind of seduction to blame the other right for whatever it is that they're doing and that's the reason for um where we have to end the partnership and so um when i heard the phrase resonating wounds and then you know began to see it in action you know within myself and my partner and even with others it was so profound to be able to again make conscious that and so i would love for you just to unpack that a little as well this this idea of uh, resonating wounds Mm-hmm. Yes, that's a very, um, very, fam- very common uh, concept, you know, and also gives you the feeling. Um, uh, I'll describe it in a minute, and it gives you the feeling of how utilitarian intimacy can be. You know, it's esoteric on one end of the spectrum, and it's so fundamentally utilitarian. So people are often drawn to each other. Um, uh, through projection and um, physical magnetism and shared collaborations. Uh, you know, they meet in some collaborative environment or uh, many, many different ways. And then the magnetism um, wants to grow. The, 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 the coming together never ends on the path of intimacy. There's no plateau. And many of the couples that started doing the flesh and spirit work had reached a plateau and they wanted to go further. They didn't, you know, they were clear they were partners, but the relationship was plateaued. And this is very, very familiar. And um, so the, the field of intimacy has to broaden. And there are basically two ways to broaden that is one to go deeper in, in the primary relationship, and the other way is to expand the relational field to include more than just two people, which is a, a process now being explored by many communities and and um, and groups of people and so forth. Um, in um, in flesh and spirit, we speak of the of the first way uh, of deepening the relationship. That's the focus. Um, in the book that I'm finishing now. Um, it has both. There's an exp- it's an exploration of the expansion of relational field um, with to more than t- uh, two people. So um, so what happens is as we grow up, in some way, love is incomplete, and that varies enormously. You know, there are people who grow up, let's say, as orf- orphans, and they don't have that early. Um, uh, embrace, let's say, much at all. And if they're very fortunate and go to a community, they can be served. And that's why there's so many children's stories about orphans, because in a sense, we're all orphans. In some way, depending on our experience with our parents, um, we are, are not celebrated. The miracle of life isn't celebrated. And, um, and we drift from the flesh and spirit even as children, we, we, you know, we drift into the functionality of going to school and feeling our limitations and all that. So as a consequence of, of, of all of that, um, certain fear gets embedded in our psyche. And then life becomes, how do we, how do we handle life, you know? 
And then we have ideas about how um, if we're okay enough, then we can do this. If we're okay enough, if we study enough, if we're if we make ourselves pretty enough, if we do this exercise, if we learn to dance, whatever it may be. And those are all doing things. And they help us to enter teenage years more, if we're fortunate, and enter young adulthood and get married, maybe, and even have children. The wound, the self-doubt is still there. We've compensated for it. We've compensated for it, but it's still there. It's not conscious, except sometimes it comes up in dreams, and that's why the dreams are so important. Then if we are drawn to go deeper in relationship, at some point the wound emerges. We begin to get a sense of it. Certain situations are very difficult. And um, at first we avoid those situations. But the desire to grow, the desire to be whole, the desire to relate and celebrate love is so much of the human condition and so much what we have to remember now as we evolve more consciously, that we eventually are attracted, part of the projective process attracts us to somebody who has a wound which is going to make our wound heightened. (laughs) So instead of avoiding fear, we're drawn into a situation in which we encounter fear because we're drawn in other ways. We're magnetized by a person who um, um, will make us face that self-doubt. And this was classic for me in meeting Jacqueline. You know, I I had a fairly strong uh, childhood, but for a variety of reasons, the wound was to connect physical love, the celebration of love, um, uh, that's why flesh and spirit became so important. And Jacqueline had a gift in that direction. And her wound had to do with uh, self-doubt about her capacity and, um, you know, growing up in a family of nine, eight other children and sort of getting lost. And in the patriarchal era where she was, if she was supposed to be a secretary or take tickets in a movie theater, that was... So for her to become a psychiatrist was, an, an, you know, an enormous uh, movement to overcome that. And so um, her wound of self-doubt um, and my wound of not feeling I was a lover uh, brought us together. And she was delighted because she saw me as a somewhat developed person with this big wound. And she sort of rubbed her hands and said, okay, I've got a real... <laughs> I've got a real, uh, to use her favorite word then, was I got a real cherry here I can work with. And in some ways, part of the path of intimacy is the woman helping the man learn, teaching the man how to be a lover, how to be her lover. That's very much of a theme that comes up in the practices. And so that's what we did. And that's what inspired a lot of um, flesh and spirit. So the matching wound brings the shadows up. And um, it, it's so healthy. It's so, you know, and if that, that's why I feel it can make a deep contribution in this book that I'm finishing now. Um, uh, at the end, uh, there's an attempt to bring intimacy into the evolutionary 
force for the for these kinds of reasons. You touched on some really important pieces there. Um, you know, one because what comes to me when you speak about resonating wounds as actually a, an attractive force to surface and to heal shadow or what has been in the shadow, um, as I'm I'm hearing it, is very different than a lot of the contemporary um, take on things about people attracting to each other just to, I don't know, create a lot of mayhem, right? Where uh, uh, there's this popular video going around saying, you know, um, why you'll marry the wrong person. And I think that they do stick as well to this understanding that, yeah, there's these imprints that one gets in childhood, uh, which then govern largely their choice in, you know, relationship. And I think for me, the, the, the frame is very different though than what you're, what you're saying, because the frame that I think the contemporary culture says is it's a sort of flaw of human design that they'll be attracted to other people uh, that is going to create lots of conflict, right? Because of these kind of um, patterns that are set. But what I hear and what you're saying is that actually there's a deeper intelligence that brings people together uh, to actually heal these wounds. And yet the, the difference for me and what I'm hearing too is that it has to be conscious though. Like that there has to be a, a kind of conscious intentionality and willingness to order to to navigate and to bring forth those places. Um, otherwise, yeah, they just largely kind of create patterns of conflict and destruction of which, you know, I've certainly been caught, you know, in, in some of my relationships too. Um, but that consciousness um, to me, it feels like that's really the missing piece. Mm-hmm. That's has to be enough consciousness to to whet your appetite. And then, of course, the path becomes one of more and more consciousness. And um, the shadow, uh, there's such a misunderstanding about the word shadow, as, you know, I think many people are trying to um, clarify now. Um, it's, its definition means the absence of consciousness. And it's, you know, and, and often the absence of consciousness is difficult, uh, difficult impulses, difficult forces, in us. So the identification of shadow with evil um, is a misunderstanding of the process, and we really need to be careful about that. So there is an innate intelligence. It's the innate, innate intelligence. If you watch nature films like David Attenborough's films, uh, provide an incredible explanation of this innate desire to procreate and to um, nourish and to grow and to evolve. And that's still working in us in a much more subtle way. So um, uh, if there can be that awakening, if people can meet not only on the basis of um, commonality and um, similar backgrounds, you know, that's safe perhaps, but it doesn't necessarily have the adventure. And um, it's the combination of the attraction, the projection that's attractive, and the projection um, that has to do with the wounds. And if we can develop our appetite for consciousness, that's what we need. We need an appetite for consciousness. That's so missing. It's missing, you know, in the culture in so many obvious ways, and we're seeing it now, and beginning to, you know, do things to heal it in a certain kind of way that we would not have done before if we were doing business as usual. So it's a very difficult time, you know, terrifying opportunity time, but it's, um, it is an opportune time. You said to me one time on a previous conversation, uh, you made a distinction between monogamy and 
polyamory. And you touched on it a little bit there just now um, in this, what you'd shared, but I actually really appreciated what you said, which was um, you, you, you kind of like made a connection to water and you said monogamy is like water rushing through a canyon, like a very kind of focused intensity where uh, maybe I should say conscious monogamy, whereas polyamory in your experience um, was more about, it almost felt like a wetland, you know, that was actually dispersing the nourishment of, of Eros, uh, at least that's how I understood it, uh, dispersing it over a wider field, which, you know, certainly has its beauty. Um, at the same time, it seemed to lack the intensity that can come from uh, a kind of conscious monogamous relationship. And I'm curious, yeah, is that still true um, in, in your understanding uh, of how those two can, can relate? Um, in in expanding the intimacy field into the wetland, to use that metaphor, which seems to be a pretty good one, um, I, I find myself not using the term polyamory because it has such associations for people now. And I have worked with polyamorous groups um, in recent years. Uh, I had limited experience with that before Jacqueline died because we were focused mainly on um, dyadic couples. But since her death, um, the energy that was in our relationship, um, and that, that's where the image of the canyon came, you know, the, 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 the depth and the rushing waters and every once in a while there's a placid. I used to, I used to take kids on canoe trips so uh, you know, the river is a, is a metaphor that I that I find myself using a lot. And then there's that moment where the river comes out of the mountain area, out of the hills, out of the canyons, and begins to flow uh, more broadly and more slowly. And 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 the wetlands is a source of life. I mean, the canyons of, you know, the rivers and the mountains are, can be sources of life too, but the wetlands are even more so. And you get that delta, you know, it's not a well-defined. So my experience in the six years since Jacqueline died has been to take that energy and to broaden it. And how, how can we share that in community? How can we bring an appropriate level of intimacy into our community so that it's not just limited to the few couples that have the blessings and the fortitude and the opportunity to um, go deeply. How do we bring that energy in? And so that's been the experiment um, these last years. And that's what, uh, and this book, make, this new book makes the transition from um, a dyadic relationship at the end of life and then into the expansion. And it has much to do with the curriculum for a senior, learning to, you know, leave the body gracefully and more consciously, it has many implications. Um, and most people are going to be single. Um, you know, their partner will, unless you go down in an airplane together or something, uh, most people um, are, quote, alone at the end of their life after a long uh, journey relationally. And they have a lot of experience and that experience can be shared. And they have a lot more to learn, so they can continue to learn and prepare for the end of life. So um, it's a different, it's a, it's an expansion of consciousness, and polyamory can be that, you know. And I think that's where some people are headed with it. And then, of course, it's experiential. People are 
wanting to feel other intimate experiences and there are many other motivations. And it's be it's been evolving from Burning Man to, you know, to camps here on the island that are regular meeting places for people. You know, you spoke to yeah, your your most, most recent work, which is a forthcoming book. And, uh, you know, we talked a little bit outside of this conversation already to to really make space for that, proper space, to really go into that material, which I think is deeply profound as one who's been on this path for many years. And uh, for the kind of, I guess, closing lap on this conversation, um, you know, given the context of this as the, the mythic masculine, um, which isn't limited to the experiences of men, um, and at the same time, I'm curious, you know, what have you learned uh, in terms of patterns that you see around intimacy that that have shown up again and again for men? You know, you you uh, mentioned something even earlier in this conversation around that there's something, you know, we could speak just in the moment to heterosexual couples where the part of becoming a lover is like the woman teaching the man actually about that, uh, maybe how to to be with her body and and make it sing, you know, in all these other ways. And that to me is also, again, like a, a very different kind of understanding. Um, and so I'd love for you to name, maybe there's some few other patterns that might be helpful to surface, you know, for listeners around, uh, you know, ways and maybe blocks that you see and the ways that men relate or the fears that men bring to intimacy that, uh, that you've seen could be, could be helpful for them to know. Well, since so many institutional um, practices uh, in traditional religion and so forth, um, uh, implicitly um, incorporate that fear, you know, the power of intimacy, the power of attraction. You know, when a man feels he's not in control, um, control being an issue, um, then he, he pulls back. And as I was listening to your question, I went back into the 80s, and I remember um, the when Robert Bly and many other people were um, beginning to uh, do the, uh, what they did. And there was a book, I believe the author is Lee, I think his name is Lee, and he talks about the four archetypes of the male. Mm-hmm. Um, and the four archetypes are the warrior, the king, um, the shaman or magus, and the lover. And history has been full of those archetypal images um, for the men to be either the king or the warrior. Um, and of course, there have been individuals who have uh, followed other paths, but the collective path has been the king and the warrior. And that's why the world has been the way it is. You know, if you have those two archetypes as dominant archetypes, then two kings are going to have to battle and several warriors are going to have to battle ultimately, even if their ultimate purpose is to bring peace to their country or whatever. Um, so um, I think what's happening now is that the archetype of the lover particularly is emerging. So in the path of intimacy for the man is an opportunity for him to become the mythic lover, for him to become um, and to tell his story and to listen to other men's stories. So part of the, uh, to learn about what it is to be a lover, what it is to actually transcend the uh, individualism and the persona, the, uh, the ego, uh, to, to have the ego become transparent. It's incredibly in, um, freeing. It's a, it's a liberation. That is ultimately the liberation we all talk about on the spiritual path. 
because we're celebrating love in a very tangible kind of way. And the man feels his learning and his opening and has so many different dimensions. So part of the practice of the flesh and spirit is to have couples meet after they've learned about the practices. So we have circles of lovers that have been meeting. There's one in Southern California that's been meeting for 14 years. And we have one here on the island that's been meeting for six years. And, uh, and we keep going. We, we meet every month. So um, we do the practice that's described in the flesh and spirit where we help each other. We, we give voice to each other's third because it's always easier to witness some of the difficult um, unconsciousness than it is to see it yourself. If it's unconscious, it's unconscious and you don't see it. <laughs> and there's no blame but somebody else can see it. So um, the possibilities for men on the path of intimacy are enormous. And intimacy is fundamentally, once it goes into relationship uh, shamanically, is a shamanic path as well. So the fourth archetype, the magus or the shaman, um, then also is, is born, and the man becomes a maker of magic as, as a lover. He becomes a maker of magic as a musician. I've seen musicians work together, and I've watched their third consciousness as musicians, and then sort of said, well, how could you do that as lovers, too? You know, Sometimes the music is the way they express their love, and it's wondrous. And then they can expand it sometimes into a full relationship. Or sometimes a couple finds their music, their way of, of serving, you know, the community and serving each other by m- making that bridge. So there is incredible opportunity for men to um, have a balance of the four archetypes, which was the whole point when that book came out, and um, to um, have more access to their feelings. So many men, it's so hard for them to express their feelings. But if you're a lover, that's your, that's your new language. That's your vocabulary, what I call the language of the heart-mind. And the heart-mind is, is a liberation state of consciousness. And um, if you're a lover, that's a very direct path to it. There are other paths, of course. But um, that's a, a major and very functional path. Hmm. Wow, I love that. The rise of the, the mythic lover. Is what's asked, you know, in these times. Mm. I'd love to leave the listeners, um, if you're willing, to share a story around Jacqueline's passing, as uh, she's such a such a present figure. I mean, in this conversation already, I feel, and and certainly in your continued journey. But maybe, uh, yeah, if you'd be willing to share what that was like in this conversation today. Mm. Well. Uh, the first part of this new book is very much about the very end <clears throat> of Jacqueline's life and is a sequel to the book um, Jack and Jacqueline, An Adventure in Evolutionary Intimacy. In that book, we wondered what would happen to relationship after one of us um, made the journey, left our body. And Jacqueline was pretty sure it was going to be her. Um, and so we sort of prepared in, in a way. We prepared um, in the way we talked about our intimacy. And the, and the bridge way of talking about it was 
seeing intimacy as a death and rebirth experience. Every time you make love in an unbounded way, who you thought you were dies, and who comes out of that experience is reborn. And of course, it's similar to the person that went in in some ways, but in some ways, it's very, very different. So intimacy gives you an end-of-life practice. I used to think of it in, in, in like the sweat lodge. You know, you go into the sweat lodge, you take off your persona, you take off your clothes, and you go into the lodge and you pray, and um, the unconscious comes and the conscious comes, and you pray together, and then you crawl out like a baby out of the womb, and that's the tradition you know, of the lodge. And intimacy is very, very, very much the same kind of way. So we entered that year in which she was ill, and we knew, she knew what was going to happen. We did certain medical things, but as a physician, she really um, uh, wanted to focus on as graceful a, an ending as possible. And so we, we set practices in motion for continuing the relationship and, um, and trusted that that would in some way happen that her consciousness. And it's that's the whole first part of the book is how that happened. And um, with allies, with dear friends that were part of the circle of lovers that we started six years ago. And those people became very much part of the, of the intimacy path in many ways. And um, one thing in particular is um, um, one of the couples I'm very close to introduced me to a body worker and um, I had a series of sessions and got very close to that person and, and her partner. Um, and that person um, and I together worked out a way of internalizing Jacqueline's field. So there is an experience energetically of internalization. Uh, and, and the idea was playfully, what would it look like if you could have that internalization and so that your body would be housing third consciousness, relational consciousness, which our bodies always do. And, and, and what would it be like to do it consciously? So that was one um, energetic experience that has really shaped my life and, um, and, the, and the intimate life um, in the last six years. And the other thing I want to just mention is um, that one of the things that Jacqueline said to me about grief about 10 days after she left I was sitting in a hotel. <clears throat> it was actually less than this, than 10 days, and um, sending emails to dear friends. And um, I heard this little presence on my left shoulder, and, um, and I was talking about grief in my email. And she said, sweetheart, let me say something about grief already. When you feel grief or when you have a memory like you're walking through the house and you see a picture of me or, and you go into that. When you feel that wave of grief, it's an invitation from me to connect in that moment. Mm. It's the fuel, it's the log on the fire for our connection. So within days after she left her body, I was getting imprint from her. I was getting direct you know, and it was so authentic, you know, I, her particular sense of humor and how she presented things was so uniquely 
what, what I heard in the inner ear. And that practice of grief has really served me. So that you feel the grief, it's the raw material to connect, and the relationship continues. Not in memory, but in the moment. Mm. So that's mm. a, just a little hint about what some of the practices can be. Hmm. Wow, that is profound. And, um, you know, I'm feeling deeply grateful for the richness of our conversation, Jack, and the work that, you know, you and Jacqueline have done over so many years and, and your willingness to continually explore and to, you know, excavate and to wonder about this path of intimacy um, and for sharing what you have today. So yeah, I just feel overwhelming sense of uh, yeah, gratitude, appreciation for you and, and for Jacqueline. Thank you very much. I'm grateful for this opportunity. It's been very good to to talk to you and to have this connection. We've been connected for a while now, and this is really a, a harvest of that. So thank you so much. Thank you for listening to today's Mythic Masculine podcast. If you liked what you heard, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you're listening, and leave a comment. And if you'd like to support future episodes, head over to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash ianmack. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash i-a-n-m-a-c-k to become an ongoing funder. Thank you.